This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Hi, guys. Today, we've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Dean and Sarah. So he is the founding and lead pastor of City Church in Tallahassee, Florida. Dean graduated from Liberty University and attended Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He also holds an MA in Theological Studies from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and is pursuing a D-Men uh, from Southern Seminary. So he's also an advisor member of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission's Leadership Council with the Southern Baptist Convention. So the reason why he's on the podcast today is because he wrote a book that came out earlier this year called Pure. And the subtitle of the book is Why the Bible's Plan for Sexuality isn't outdated, irrelevant, or oppressive. So just right there from the title, I was like, okay, I got to make sure I talk to this guy. It's a short book. It's a short read, but we really dig into a lot of topics here. So we dig into the purity culture because you've heard a lot of people talk about rejecting the purity culture. And I actually push back on them because that's the whole point of the book is really rejection of what purity culture has done. That's where he starts the book, but I didn't really get his point of view. And so I asked him about that. So we got to, you know, go back and forth a little bit on that. But then we talked about how the pendulum has kind of swung from, okay, purity culture, culture to the church is saying, yeah, do whatever you want sexually. It doesn't matter. God doesn't care. Certainly that kind of thing and kind of what all that looks like. But then we dig into a bunch of lies that we've learned from culture. Like, you know, marriage is a capstone, not a cornerstone. Being, being gay is okay. It's just, you know, another thing, right? That your bedroom is your business that no one else should be able to tell you what to do in your bedroom. You know, cohabitation, it just makes sense. And even a lot of Christians have bought into these lies hook, line and sinker. And then we ended by talking about man friendly churches. So I got to ask him a bunch of questions about how he operates and how he makes sure that his church down there in Florida is man-friendly. I really enjoyed my time with him. So without further ado, let's get into it. Dean and Sarah, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Hey, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm glad to have you on. We had a nice little chat afterwards. So I was like, okay, we need to go ahead and hit the record button so that we can get a lot of this stuff uh, down on the record. But we do need to start as generically as possible just to give guys a little bit of a an extra dose of who you are because I, I said who you were in the intro, but just from your own words. I guess the, the easiest way is give us the SparkNotes version of when you became a Christian and then I guess why did you decide to become a professional Christian, you know, going into yeah. full-time ministry? <laughs> well, when I was 13 years old, I went to a Fellowship of Christian Athletes, FCA camp. And I heard the good news about Jesus, the gospel, for the first time. Uh, I was raised in church, went to church every Sunday, unless we were sick or out of town. I, I said a prayer before dinner every night with my family, uh, but I never had anyone actually tell me that I was a sinner who needed to be saved. Mm. Uh, I was raised very kind of mainline, kind of non-gospel preaching church, told to be a good person, you know, obey your parents, be, you know, loving, those type of things. Never was actually told my need for Christ outside of presenting him as a buddy or a good luck charm kind of idea. They didn't use that language. That's kind of what was implied. Uh, so at that retreat, I had a, a preacher who was actually the chaplain for the University of Florida football team. And uh, he just straight up just gave it out and said, here it is. Uh, you need Jesus. And here's why. And, and here's who he is. Here's what he's done for you. And I truly sitting there 13 years old. I'm going, that's me. 
Like, I, I need that. Like, I'm a sinner. I've never actually been forgiven of my sins. I've never been saved before. And it was like an old-fashioned altar call. I've never seen one of those before. Didn't know what was mm-hmm. going on. Thought it was kind of weird. Uh, but I went forward, and one of the coaches was up there. And uh, he saw me and said, hey, man, what's up? And I said, what he was just talking about, I, I, that's me. So he went and sat against the wall of this old gym. And it's like an old high school basketball gym where the retreat was. And he explained to me what it meant to trust in Christ and to be a Christian. And it was probably a 20-minute conversation, answering my questions. And I gave my life to Christ that day. And, and I joke that I'm the only person to ever uh, become a Christian and get mad about it. Now, don't get me wrong. I had joy. But I'm seriously thinking in my head, I haven't been in church my entire life, and no one's ever told me this before. So yeah. I was a little fired up about that. But then from there, how I uh, – the ministry a whole factor of going to full-time ministry was I realized – from a very young age, probably a year later, that what happened to me, that's the story of my friends where I live, mm. where a lot of folks claim they're Christians. And by that, they mean they're just not atheists. And they're not Jewish, Muslim, or Buddhist, or Hindu. So therefore, they're Christians. It's more based on what they're not than what they are. It's almost like right. a, just a, another label on, on the labels of life. And, you know, kind of like, I'm a guy, I'm a dad, I'm, a, you know, I'm an American, I'm a firefighter, I'm a Christian. Rather than, no, right. this is like, this is the identity of who I am as a Christian. It's first and foremost. I, I had no concept of that. Uh, so I wanted to start a church in my hometown that reach my friends. And uh, we, okay. started, we started a church 15 years ago and have seen incredible things happen since then in the capital city of Florida where I live. Well, that's amazing. I, I do want to get into this in... I do want to definitely get into the book today, but you obviously brought something up there right from the beginning that I think is very, very important. It is astonishing because I grew up in Oklahoma, so that's the belt buckle, the Bible belt. So it's kind of the same thing. If you believe in God, you are a Christian. Like, you know, you hear a lot of people talk about God, but they don't really talk about Jesus very much. They don't really talk about the gospel. So this is too big of a question to ask to, to just get a small kind of short answer so that we can keep the momentum going. But why does that happen so much? Culturally, why does cultural Christianity spend so much time, you know, focusing on the do's and don'ts of what a moral life is, as opposed to, you know, understanding how depraved they are and understanding how sinful they are and how they are literally irredeemable without the blood of Christ? I know that's not a message that gets a lot of people super fired up because it's like it seems really judgmental and really scary and really all those things. But gosh, if that's the real message, why would Christians try to soften it? Yeah, especially when without that message, we miss entirely who Jesus is. Right. Well, I, think, I think in Galatians chapter 2, that if righteousness comes by keeping the law, 2.21, then Jesus died for nothing. Like he's actually right. saying that if we can get to God on our own, if it's all about just our effort and our achievements and our drive, uh, then Jesus, the cross was pointless. We can go even more than that. Like Christmas Day is pointless. Like it means nothing. There's nothing to celebrate if we can do all this on our own. So I think where we get trapped in that is we have uh, just created this sort of gospel message that really doesn't depend on the work of Christ very much. Uh, So I had a seminary professor who used to tell us, never preach a sermon that would still be true if Jesus hadn't died and risen again. Mm. Because then it's not a distinctly Christian sermon. Uh, so we have we've uh, kind of traded it for TED talks on inspirational living and and on you know just kind of five you know tips to be a better this a better that rather than actually holding up Jesus who the entire Bible cover to cover is about you know ultimately the Old Testament points us to our need for Him and to His coming the New Testament's the realization of that we got to be people who actually define our faith by Jesus so it's easy to that being a Christian is more important oftentimes in our society than actually believing Christian. And we have to have belief before we can have any kind of being. And we have to be unashamed to talk about that. 
Yeah, I think there's a whole lot more there. Towards the end, I want to kind of get into a little bit more of how the church is the seeker-sensitive style that brings a lot of people in and definitely entertains them and helps them be better at life, but doesn't necessarily lead them to uh, you know eternal life, I guess would be the way to say it. But one of the main reasons why I wanted to have you on today is because of a book that you wrote that was released actually in May of this year, and it's this book here, Pure, Why the Bible's Plan for Sexuality Isn't Outdated, Irrelevant, or Oppressive. And I didn't put enough emphasis on that. It's why the Bible's plan for sexuality is isn't, as in is not, outdated, irrelevant, or oppressive. So just by the, the subtitle of the book, I was like, okay, I got to talk to this guy because obviously we're, we're taking a lot of our cues from, from culture now, but we're going to dig into a lot of this book. But just go ahead. I love to hear it from the author's mouth. 30,000 foot view. What is this book about and what do you want readers to get out of it after they're done with it? Yeah, well, there was something back in the 90s when I was growing up. I was in high school in the 90s. It was kind of my early forming years as a Christian that people now call purity culture. We didn't call it that then, but now it's called that in retrospect. And it was really tied to what was called the True Love Waits movement, uh, which made this big, huge effort among youth and college students specifically, uh, the this is their wording, to save yourself, was what they would call it, for your future mate. That, that was their language. Save yourself for your future mate. And again, I don't want to hate on anybody that's uh, pushing people towards abstinence and sexual purity and, and, you know, in a Christian context. I think that's a great thing. But it was the approach and the focus that was the issue. Looking back on it now, and I know hindsight's twenty twenty, but when we look back on it now, uh, what they really were pushing was just plain and simple. You don't want to be the one who messes things up for the future. Like, you don't want to be the guy who on your honeymoon has been with all these girls and your wife never been with anybody before, so it's going to, you know, wreck her and or, or, you know, or vice versa. And again, all that is worth a conversation, you know, about the effect that stuff can have on someone. I'm not denying any of those kind of things, but that's not the focus of the scriptures when it comes to a sexual ethic. It's not, oh, no, you might be the guy who messes up. Rather, the focus is God's design, like what God has given us and given his people to enjoy the gift of sex. So what happened was sex kind of got painted as this bad thing. It was almost like the boogeyman, this thing to be completely avoided because it's going to lead you to bad things. And on the other side of it was it created a lot of guilt and shame in people. Because all of a sudden they're like, well, I've already done all this. You know, I've already, you know, been, I've already slept with this girl at spring break and this girlfriend and, you know, these type of things. Uh, so now I guess it doesn't matter anymore. I can just go sort of do whatever because I've already sort of disqualified myself or messed up or disappointed God. Well, that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ either. Right? That, that, that's not the focus of the Christian faith is that I already screwed up and it doesn't matter anymore. And then it also created some um, sort of Pharisee culture. Where on the other side of the coin, folks would be like, well, you know, I'm just, you know, I've, you know, waited all this time and I've, you know, held out and I've saved myself. So therefore, I'm not going to marry some girl who hasn't. Again, where is that in the Christian faith? So it created either a shame culture or a, or a Pharisee kind of culture rather than just people who believed in God's design and believe that God's design of sex between a man and a woman who are husband and wife is one for his glory, most importantly, but second for our good. So that was not in the equation of the conversation. It wasn't about God. It wasn't about Christ. It wasn't about new life in the gospel. It was about don't be the one who screws up. <laughs> and I just don't see that as how God describes sexuality to us in the Bible. So I'm trying to do in the book is say, okay, so what's happened now is people are bemoaning this whole idea of what's called purity culture. And they're to, use an over, to, to give an overused cliche are throwing the baby out with the bathwater. 
and just totally thumbing their nose at that and saying that was all bad. So let's just not talk about sexuality. Let's not talk about ethics. That's for like the old school ultra fundamentalist person. You just kind of do you and we're just going to mind our own business. Just don't hurt anybody. Like, no, no, no. God has a clear design for sexuality. And just because Christians in the past have taken the wrong approach doesn't change the reality that God has a design for us. So let's dig into that a little bit further, because right from the jump of the book, you, you really start to get after the purity culture. And again, you describe it as true love weights or, you know, at my church, it was worth the weight, all pretty much the same type of thing. And that was, you know, 90s and early 2000s inside the church. And as I as I finished the book, Dean, I agreed with so much stuff from this book. But, but I got to be honest, right from the beginning, I just didn't get what the big deal was with purity culture, because it seems like much of the disdain of that movement is coming from the ex-evangelical crowd, you know, the church hurt me crowd, which by the way, a lot of people in the church hurt me crowd, they're full of people that are mad that their churches didn't let them sin and tell them that it was okay. You know I mean? You would obviously agree with that. And oh, I agree with you like, a thousand like, percent, yeah. a thousand well, percent. Well, and that's kind of where I, where I was coming from, where it's like, it's seeming like there's so few people that were actually damaged by the church and those that were damaged, there needs to be some sort of retribution for them. But to be honest, the church shouldn't really care what people outside the church think about what's going inside the church. But, but here's the thing, like on this, on this show and in this interview, again, we're going to get into all the stuff I agree with you on, but I'm going to start with the sticking point, which is the overall thesis of the book. I'm open to be swayed on this, but convince me that purity culture was a big, bad mistake. Because for me, when I wore that ring, I took it seriously. And I, and I was thinking about my future spouse and it was, it was at a time when no one was really showing me or discipling me. And so the best I could do as a Christian was to read the Bible and, and try my best to do things that were godly and not sinful. And that, that ring was a reminder. So for me, maybe I was the exception. I don't know, but, but go for it. Yeah, no. And, and I, so I actually agree with you on this, I, I would say pretty accurately. And what I'm doing in the book is I'm saying, okay, let's say everything they say negatively about purity culture is accurate, just for the sake of argument. Yeah. That doesn't for a moment change the fact that God has a clear design. So I, was, so I was willing to even like yield on some of the problems of purity culture. And I do believe it did create some shame culture that shouldn't have been there. And we were talking in the gospel context uh, or, and I do think it did create some Pharisees that I encountered along the way. But a purity culture meant that people like you and people like me were saying, you know what? Uh, I, I really don't want to be someone who engages in sexual morality. And, and I do mm -hmm. want to make sure the first person that I ever have a sexual relationship with is, is my spouse. Praise God, right? I mean, praise God for that. I, I've never met anyone before that's like, you know what? I wish I would have had more sex before I got married. Right. I, yeah. I, 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 I've never met that person before. Uh, so uh, so I'm, I'm with you on those things. I just see there's so much pushback right now. It's just in an online crowd. I don't see the average person in a church pew pushing back. But in the online crowd, there's so much outrage. New York Times running op-eds. I quote them in the book and, and interact with those op-eds, bemoaning purity culture. But the, the context goes back to the fact that because this was so bad in my eyes, therefore sexual God's sexual design is just irrelevant, it's oppressive. It's the, and I'm going, whoa, where are you getting that from? Because some Christians did some things you disagreed with. It means that God's design changes. That's more the focus of the book. I just come out of the gate going, okay, let's talk about purity culture in general. I, I personally am not one of those people that was scarred by it. Like I wasn't right. negatively affected by it, which I'm thankful for. It actually helped me understand some of these things. But but to that point, would you say that your book or your philosophy here is almost a scaffolding to understand how the pendulum has swung so far over to the other side? Yes, that's what I'm okay. trying to do. Yeah, gotcha. that, that I tried to accomplish in the book is go, time out, wait a second here. Now look where we are. 
So, so what's the alternative? The sexual revolution <laughs> that we've experienced over the past decade, even less than that. Like that—that's the alternative. And I'm going. Let's just let's just call a huge timeout here for a second and realize that that Christian culture changes all the time. God's word doesn't. And we need to talk about why it matters again for his good and for our glory, for which, his glory and for our good. <laughs> right. Which, which sounds so bigoted to point to this ancient book with all these fables in it. And that's exactly how the New York times would couch it. But so, so I appreciate you letting us dig into kind of the overall premise of the book, but we can kind of get into some other areas because again, if you're going to talk about a book that concerns sexual purity, you have to spend a lot of time talking about sex and you talk about this tremendous societal push to look at sex as it's just sex. And having that mindset, and you cover that, so I want to read this quote from the book here. Paul does not seem to subscribe to the claim that all sins are equal in the eyes of God. All sin is an offense against God and requires full atonement made possible only through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But sexual sin seems to be differentiated here as having a unique kind of consequence. So let's talk about that unique kind of consequence because I have been in discussions with guys that are very, very close to me that go to the same church as me, might even be in my same Sunday school, and they don't look as sexual sin as if it's any different than telling a lie. So when they they look at, you know, one of their friends might have a gay friend and how they're how they would talk to that person and basically say, kind of like the Lady Gaga thing, like, hey, this is how you were made, this is how you are, this is your cross to bear or whatever, but they don't treat it any differently. But I'm with you in terms of that quote. We don't seem to have that out. It's the one sin that is described as being against our own bodies. It seems wholly different. W-H-O-L-L-Y. It seems wholly different than any other of the sins that we see, right? Yeah, and it is. And, and I mean, there's reason, I don't know where we got the whole idea that all sins are equal. Like, who came up with that? What, like, mm-hmm. back in Christian jargon, lingo kind of history? Uh, we see that's totally, in the book of James, it says that controlling your tongue is, like, more difficult than anything else. Like, what yeah. you say, how, how hard that is. Like, it's different than other things. And in sexuality, uh, we see, like you mentioned, that it's actually sinning against our bodies. So right. all sins are equal in the fact that they all require the death of Jesus, right? Right For us to be forgiven. Like, every single sin we commit would separate us from God, right? So they're, right. they're all equal in that sense. Uh, but where it's not the same is here is we're talking about sexuality. We see the, the storyline of sex in the Bible referred to from Genesis towards till we see it in Ephesians chapter 5, Jesus in Matthew 19, Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, all talking about this thing called one flesh, a one flesh union. That's really important to understand. Now, one flesh is more than sex, but it's definitely not less. So when Adam and Eve came together, it was sexually, they became one flesh. They were united together. That actually points us ultimately as a visible portrait of the invisible reality of our oneness with Christ. Like our union with Christ is a really important Christian doctrine for our listeners who may be interested in theology. Uh, that union with Christ is a really important doctrine of the Christian faith. We're one with the Lord uh, for those who've been saved and forgiven of their sins and made new in Christ. So when in 1 Corinthians 6, when there's the Corinthian believers are engaging in temple prostitution, so actual believers who were sinning and got caught up in the culture around them, and in their culture, one of the things to do was to go down to the temple and engage in prostitution. Paul does not give them this lecture on why they shouldn't do prostitution. He doesn't say things like it's demeaning to women, it's a pagan ritual in that context, uh, that maybe it's unhealthy. Instead, he says, don't you know that when you lie with her, you become one flesh with her? As in you are engaging in this permanent thing with a temporary person. 
you're taking something that was designed to create oneness, not just a feeling or you know a sexual desire satisfaction, but to create, you know, that's part of it, but a oneness with that person. So you're taking this out of the design. So when we sin sexually, what we're doing in the Bible's eyes is we're taking this one flesh union that God has created for male and female to be husband and wife and placing it in a context that is temporary. And that's a whole lot different deal uh, when it comes to our sin. Yeah, and and I think that that, again, for me, is kind of with the whole purity culture thing. It was a great thing to know because— I don't know that I would have known otherwise, Dean, without the the teachings of the the worth the weight thing and, you know, kind of learning the, the do's and don'ts. And like, I had a, a reverence, you could maybe even call it a fear of the sex act because, you know, growing up as a knucklehead non-Christian, you're just like, well, I wonder if that's the girl I'm going to first have sex with. And I wonder, do I need to have sex now when all my my friends are having it? Or do I wait? Is it Does it come later? Do I have to get a job first? Like you ask yourself all these dumb questions because you just don't have the scaffolding with which to, you know, differentiate what's a good way of looking at things, what's a bad way to looking at things. And a lot of it, Dean, comes from the father of lies. Like he's, you know, yeah. prowling around like a lion looking for someone to devour. And so you spend a huge chunk of the book going over lies. And you specifically have seven lies that you take us through. And we're not going to go through all these. We're going to go through some of them. But the lies are number one, sex is expected. Number two, marriage is a capstone, not a cornerstone. Number three, porn is the norm. Number four, gay is okay. Number five, my bedroom is my business. Number six, nobody has to know. And number seven, cohabitation just makes sense. So let's go back to lie number two, and that's marriage is a capstone, not a cornerstone. So I'll read this quote here. The secular view of marriage in our day is the exact opposite. To the world, marriage is a capstone, not a cornerstone. Once you finish your master's degree, travel, save money, and maybe even buy a house or spend living in your or spend time living in your dream city, then sure, if you really want to, get married. We are seeing a generation of well-meaning Christians buy into this life plan. I think you're absolutely right, Dean. Like we're looking at this as like, okay, this is what comes after I get myself established and established is always this moving target. And then that, you know, has downstream consequences. Okay. Now you're trying to start your marriage in your early thirties. You're trying to start expanding that family in your mid to late thirties. Then you're having issues getting pregnant. You're having to go through all these other different issues. And it's because you needed to establish yourself and then you kind of miss some biological windows. So talk to us a little bit about that cultural lie of marriage as a capstone, not a cornerstone. Yeah, now, and I'm not shaming anybody who's single because simply haven't met someone yet or based on their phase of life. What I'm saying is marriage was never designed by God to be something we built our lives towards. It was something we were to build our lives from. So that's the cornerstone versus capstone kind of example there and usage of the words that, that, I, that I put together. Uh, so what's happening now is we're being told, yeah, get married once you save up enough money do everything you've wanted to do. Live together for a while to see if you're compatible, physically and socially. Right? And then, and only then, if all those things work out, then sure, yeah, then you should probably eventually get married once you're ready to settle down, whatever settle down even means, where mm -hmm. what we're saying is all those things are more important than God's design. We're also saying that things like you know, uh, financial stability, you know, our, our, our degrees, education, uh, bucket list checkoff, uh, career establishment, that all those things are more important than sexual immorality. Uh, because we're told in the scriptures that because of sexual morality, 1 Corinthians 7, that we should get married. Like that's not the reason you get married, but it's the reason why you don't delay marriage. So we have this thing we've created called dating. Dating's not a bad thing. I know everybody listening knows what dating is. Dating's not a bad thing. It's just not in the Bible. That doesn't make it bad, it just makes it neutral. 
So when we don't have the scriptures to define for us what dating is, then we have to make up the rules. And we let the world influence us more on dating than the Bible actually has. The Bible doesn't talk about it. But in our culture, dating is how you meet someone. So I'm not, I think, yes, date. Yes, go on dates and have a girlfriend and boyfriend, those kind of things. Just know that God's design for us was never dating. It was for that dating to move somewhere and not towards sleeping together, towards marriage. Right? I'm not saying on the third date you got to have some like intense conversation and you're going to freak somebody out. What I'm saying instead is dating just to date was never really the design. If we're going to pursue the opposite sex, we're pursuing them for this capstone institution or this cornerstone institution God's given us called marriage. Well, what's funny about the example you just used, Dean, is I had a guy uh, DM me like a, a week or two ago, early 20s. He has this gal that he's going to have to you know, travel. It's going to be kind of a long distance relationship thing, but he really is connecting with her and all those things. And the very first piece of advice I gave him was like, bro, you need to have some serious conversations right from the jump, right? Because they're like, that's a lot of gas money and that's a lot of time and effort. And what you don't want to do is kind of tiptoe past the graveyard for six months to a year, fall deeply in love or lust with this person, and then start having those adult conversations and realize y'all are completely different. Like she's very, very conservative. You're very, very liberal. Like she wants to have a whole bunch of kids. You've never even thought about having kids. She wants to have a career. You want her to stay home. I was like, bro, Those are great conversations that you can tactfully and tastefully have early on in a relationship, but you're so right, Dean. And I never even really thought about it until I read your book. Yeah, there really is no historical, like, you know, time period of dating. That's why I thought, you know, the book that you you talk about from the beginning where it's like, I kissed dating Dubai and we did courtship. It's like, well, that seems to make sense, but that, that had its own issues whenever you kind of bring that into the conversation. So that is an interesting thing, especially for parents. If you're trying to model something for your children or kind of give them something that you should push themselves to. There's not a whole lot of help in the scriptures about the specifics of dating, but there are a lot of things, and you make this point a lot, about what overall sexual morality and godly sex is, which is a good way to you know deal with porn, which is the lie number three. But I do want to go ahead and get into lie number four. Or go ahead, Dean. Yeah, yeah I want to add to that, that it's also important for Christian parents hmm. to not be the ones who are keeping their adult kids from moving towards godliness. With, right. They do it without even meaning to. They have short memories sometimes. They forget that they got married when they were 23, right? And, and, mm-hmm. and their thought was, oh, it was so hard. And by that, it usually just means we didn't have very much money. Right. Well, that's, that's not a requirement to get married. Can you pay your next month's rent? Okay. Like, it's okay to work from that, build your life from that. Uh, no one at age 23, you, I should say no one, very few people at age 23 have what they, had, uh, have what they now have at 53. And that's okay. Like we build towards those things and marriage is a great way to build that. So the parents are, are unknowingly actually pointing their kids towards cohabitation by refusing to bless and encourage marriage. No, I agree. And we're going to get into cohabitation because you're one of the few people I've heard kind of talk about this and certainly elucidated out in a text. But the conversation legitimately starts before that, Dean. Like the conversation of like what you should do if you're early in your 20s and you want to get married. A lot of kids are not doing that because they've ran up six figures of student loan debt. Well, there should have been some adult conversations well before that time period where it's like, hey, maybe don't just go to the most expensive university in the state and not have any idea what you're going to study. And then you're a junior and you've changed your major three times. Like maybe this isn't a good idea. A lot of adult conversations were missed on the way to that one where you're like, yeah, I guess y'all should go ahead and uh, cohabitate. But we'll we'll get there here in the discussion because I do want to talk about lie number four and that's gay is okay. So I want to read a quote here from the book. 
I believe there are two primary types of churches that have departed from traditional biblical teaching on the matter. Those who explicitly support it and those who implicitly support it by refusing to address it. And a little bit later in that chapter, you actually give that latter group a name. So back to the book here. The second category of church, which I've dubbed the MC Hammer Church, is growing, innovative, young, trendy, has an amazing band and an A-list communicator, and stays upbeat by following the unspoken rule. Can't touch this. What do they believe about homosexuality? They won't say. You can't touch that. And so the thing about this, Dean, as I'm very critical of a lot of these big churches that are exactly as you described, that beautiful buildings, the communicators are amazing, the music is incredible, but they never tackle tough issues. Specifically, there's a church here in my community. When I was talking with, with, with some of those people, I was like, hey, why doesn't the pastor ever touch? And I was specifically talking about gay marriage and homosexuality. And the person from the staff was just like, yeah, they don't want to be needlessly offensive. And I was like, needlessly offensive? You mean like saying things that would make a mob want to come after them and kill them, which is what Jesus did seemingly on a regular basis, which is what the apostles seemingly did on a regular basis. So talk to me a little bit more about these MC Hammer churches that are literally raising up a flock of people that think homosexuality is okay. And yeah, all those scriptures that say it's not, well, that's just outdated. That was a couple of thousand years ago. Yeah. Well, our churches that just deny it all together, that just deny that, that, that homosexuality is sinful. My response is kind of like, okay, thank you. You showed your cards. We know who you are, you know. And, and that's not, a, and that's not even a homosexuality issue. It's a Bible issue. There's a whole other thing. There's all kinds of stuff they don't believe, right? So that's like, okay, thank you. You're, we don't even need to like. You're not even in the conversation. Like you're on a, you're you might even be a different religion than us, sure, right? Because there's so many things you don't believe. The MC Hammer can't touch this churches. What's troubling there is that they oftentimes would affirm what the Bible says about marriage and sexuality. They're just allowing the idol of people's opinions, of approval, of church numbers, of, of, of avoiding conflict. They're letting that win out of what the Bible actually says. And what I have learned from conversations with, uh, with, with people who would identify as homosexual, gay, lesbian, etc., is they have less respect for those kind of churches. And they do a church like I pastor, a large church, but we're very clear on homosexuality. Because they say, hey, at least we know what you believe, so we can choose not to be a part of your church. I'm like, well, I wish you would visit our church, but I get it. Okay, I understand. Uh, so where I really went, where I really shook my head and went, man, this is a problem, was we had someone leave our church, and I hadn't seen her in a while, and I ran to her at a coffee shop, and it had been you know, several months, and I reached out to her, tried to, and never could connect, and I saw her at a coffee shop, and I was like, hey, I haven't seen you in a long time. What happened? And she said, well, you know, I, I came out. And I and I, she said, you know, I'm I'm Satan's sex attracted, and I have a, I have a partner now. And I was just like, okay. I said, so are you just like not in church anywhere? She's like, no, no, I'm still going to church. And she mentioned the church she went to, her new church. And I looked at her and I said, and I didn't mean to, but I laughed a little bit. And she <clears> kind of gave me a what's so funny look. And I said, I'm sorry. I said, it's just don't you know that that church? I'm friends with the pastor. Like I, I know him pretty well. Don't you know that they believe the exact same things about that? That 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 they like our church and their church believe the exact same things about homosexuality. And she was like shocked by that and like tried to argue. I'm like, go ask him. <laughs> like he right. will tell you. And she wound up leaving there and going to this very liberal Episcopalian church as a result of that. But she was more upset about them than she was about us because she at least knew what we believed. And, and here's the thing that we need to make sure we're clear on. And that's that God's design for sexuality is the exact same for a married heterosexual man like myself for a single heterosexual man as it is for a same-sex attracted man. 
And that is that sex is not for ready people or in love people or attracted people or mature people. It's for married people. Mm-hmm. And that God has defined marriage clearly as between a man and a woman in a lifelong covenant as husband and wife. And what I tell our church regularly when we talk about this is I'll say, guys, if we can believe the Bible when it tells us that Jesus rose from the grave, like what we celebrate, not just on Easter Sunday, but year round, like, and we actually can believe the Bible for this. We can believe the Bible when it tells us God's design for marriage. Yeah, and we're letting emotion and relationships. I want to be sensitive to that. I mean, I, I who wants to be labeled a bigot? Who wants to be, you know, disliked by their sibling? I mean, are, are, are you? I, I get all that, but we're but we're I think kind of starting to find out what it looks like for the first time in America uh, to live out when Jesus said, "If you love your own family more than me, you cannot be my disciple." So when we affirm what God has clearly forbidden. That's what we're doing, and we got to be really careful about that. Well, and Dean, here's the other thing is if someone's calling you a bigot and the thing you're not, thing you're doing is not bigoted, tell them to go pound sand, ignore them. Like so many Christians just melt and wilt be, between, you know, the pressure from people they're getting at work that want them to put their pronouns in their email signature and the people online that don't spend a, you know, a whole paragraph telling them how great they are because they posted a scripture online. It's like, guys, the world is going to hate you. Don't you know that? Like, but the, one of the things that I like, and this is just a quick quote from that chapter before we move on to the next lie, which is we are all loved by God and we are all called to repent of our sin, not label ourselves by it. And now, Dean, we live in a culture where we love labeling ourselves and shouting our sin. It's shout your abortion. And it's no longer, hey, let me and my friend do what we want in, in our bedroom and whatever, and you stay out of that. Now it's, you need to watch us make out in public and cheer us on, or you're a bigot. If you don't post a black square during George Floyd summer, you're a racist. Like that, That's the culture that we currently live in. But that gets into lie number five, which is my bedroom is my business. Okay. Now, in this chapter, you discuss Mark Driscoll. Now, here's the funny thing about Mark Driscoll. Just about every time now that I'm invited to come speak on someone else's show, they apparently see a lot of Mike Mark Driscoll-ish stuff in my personality and in my presentation. And so they like to ask me questions about that. They kind of combine us and look at us the same and all those things. And here's the thing. Obviously, there have been entire podcasts done. There are 20 hours worth of stuff. So if you hate Mark Driscoll or people that are like Mark Driscoll, there's a ton of stuff out there. A bunch of blogs have been written that hate that guy and will give you a hundred reasons to continue hating that guy. But I know that he made some comments publicly uh, when he was writing about sexual relations with one's spouse. Some people thought they were vulgar. They were distasteful. Some loved them. It is what it is. But in your book, you get into a specific there. So I want to touch on that here. So here's a quote. In 2006, after evangelical Ted Haggard had caught or was caught with male prostitutes, Driscoll took to the internet to comment that, quote, it is not uncommon to meet pastors' wives who really let themselves go. A wife who lets herself go and is not sexually available to her husband is not responsible for her husband's sin, but, but, but she may not be helping him either, unquote. So here's the thing with this, Dean. I super duper agree with that sentiment. And that may get me in trouble and people may not like that. They may turn off the show. That's fine. But I agree with that sentiment because I've seen a lot of guys that that obviously will remain nameless where they did all they needed to do during the dating period or the courting period to get this woman, you know, proving to them, look, I can protect you. I can provide for you all of that. And the girl did all the things she could to make sure that he was attracted to her and wanted to do those things for her. And then as soon as she got the bag, right? 
as soon as, you know, she got the ring or whatever, all of a sudden she's gaining weight like clockwork. She's not presenting herself well in public, became kind of slovenly or sloppy in her interpersonal life. And the guy is just supposed to, I guess, accept that. And the thing is, is that woman then be turns around and is shocked when her man that she is completely rejecting sexually looks at pornography, checks out women in public goes and has an affair and all those things are terrible. And none of the guys listening to, to this should go out and do those sinful things to, but to pretend that there wasn't a bunch of pressure put on that guy from, from his wife and to completely absolve her of all that. I find that to be a little bit ridiculous. So help me kind of understand yeah. your perspective there. Yeah. I want to make sure first and foremost we, uh, that I made it known that like the person, when there's an affair, it's always the person's fault who had the affair period. Sure. Like we do not pass our sin on someone else. Uh, we, we, that's just, we should, Christians should reject that wholeheartedly. The, oh, well, I just had an affair because she's gained 30 pounds or she never, we never sleep together. She's always tired. Right. Like, and I would yeah. co-sign yeah. that as well. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I just want to say it's, it is, it, that is always, and I think a lot of women need to hear that because they've been felt like they've been shamed before for husband's affairs, things such as that. And we have right. to reject that wholeheartedly. I do believe the scriptures are clear, though. In 1 Corinthians 7, we see uh, that you should actually, like part of the marriage responsibility, you know, is to make sure because, so neither one of you will be tempted that sexual intimacy is a part of the equation of your marriage. So, so the person who refuses uh, to have sex with their spouse, I don't mean, again, I just don't, I do believe that there can be rape in marriage. I, I do believe that there can be assault in marriage. Always consent, always, 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 always consent. Uh, but the fact, but not even a but, However, the person who refuses to ever, like in any kind of regular practice of being sexually intimate with their spouse, I think that person is actually neglecting their marital duties. Uh, so, so I think that needs to be talked about more. That sex in marriage, we talk about sex, we talk about premarital sex, we talk about extramarital sex. We don't talk enough about actual marital sex, which is what God's great design is. Like part of marriage is that. The one flesh union I said earlier is more than sex, but it's not less. Uh, so, so I want to encourage people out there to take that seriously in your marriage. If there's trauma or any kind of, you know, whatever it could be that's keeping you from doing that, get the help you need for yourself, but also for your spouse. Uh, because, and, and also God has created men with, with strong sexual desires. Uh, that does not mean that women are to be used because of that. They're to participate with their husbands in the expression of that. Because where God has given us to carry that out is marriage. Uh, so I, I do absolutely believe uh, that no one should be shocked uh, if they're having serious marriage issues that causes someone else to be completely discontent and, and almost feel like they have one foot out the door when there is no sexual intimacy in the marriage. Uh, I want to encourage people that are living that right now, refuse, however, to give in to sexual morality. You know, Paul said, flee from sexual morality. Make that real in your life. Flee from it. Uh, but if you're feeling tempted, you need to have some serious conversations with your spouse about what it looks like now to carry that out in the context of your relationship. Like Kind of like a what's missing, what do we need to talk about? And then yeah, absolutely. in your life. Yeah. Yeah. I, I appreciate that sentiment. And just to be clear as well, I'm obviously not absolving any men that sure. choose to do things. If you choose to look at porn and masturbate, like that is not your wife's fault. I'm just merely pointing out that yeah. when the wife is doing nothing to come towards you, I understand why guys do that. Like, you know, d depending upon your life experiences, you you, you wouldn't co-sign somebody doing something sinful, but you at least understand it more. You're like, yeah, I get why that person did that thing considering their circumstances. They shouldn't have. It's sinful and they need to repent of that, but I get it. And overall, I think that this kind of leads to this, this last thing that you kind of teed up a little bit earlier. And it's the last lie we'll go over, which is lie number seven. Cohabitation just makes sense. So we've heard this a lot. 
Okay. And, you know, I've even talked to some of my friends that are a little bit more secular and they were living with their girlfriends before they got married. And I would throw things out there like, yeah, you know, that uh, divorce rates are actually higher for people that, you know, are uh, living together before they get married. And you talk about that a little bit in the chapter, but I want to read this quote and then let you talk about it a little bit further. Where are you going on your honeymoon? Your bedroom? That's what a friend of mine said to his adult daughter when she got engaged after five years of cohabitating with her boyfriend. Even once engaged, she had no wedding date in sight. When you already have many of the benefits of marriage without the commitment, what's the rush? So from my perspective, Dean, obviously I think there are a lot of fully grown up boys uh, some people would call them men that they love cohabitation because they get to have the sex. They get to have someone, you know, clean up their dirty laundry and do all those different things. They're in no rush to buy a ring. And then when they get the ring, they're in no rush to set the date. They're in no yeah, rush. Why to would commit. they? Why would yeah, they be? Yeah, yeah. Like it doesn't make any sense. You're getting all the benefits without the potential of having to give up half your crap. You know, if things don't quite work out and then people are shocked whenever these people that, you know, test drove the car for all these years, end up trading it in for a younger model down the road. So go on a cohabitation a little bit further. Yeah. It's a fake commitment. Uh, I, I think it, it's not for Christians. I mean, it's, again, there's two different conversations here. I don't expect an unbeliever to agree with me on cohabitation. Right, the the Christian life is foolishness to them. Now we do have data just for their own personal human flourishing, like you mentioned, that divorce is more likely uh, statistically, and that's, that's a research fact of those who cohabitate first. So just for their own sake, you know, we care about that for them as just people. Uh, but for Christians, this is this should be unthinkable. Like it, it is having the benefits of marriage without the commitment and covenant of marriage. And as Christians, we're supposed to be living distinct lives that point to our distinct God. Supposed to be not conformed to the patterns of this world. And I can't think of anything that's more the patterns of this world right now than the idea of cohabitation. It's almost like living together is the new engagement. And right. Even friends will celebrate it like it's some kind of milestone in their life. You know, it's like, oh, I'm so happy for you. You're living, you're moving in together. And it's really almost like a next step on the dating sphere. And we just have to reject that wholly as Christians. But also, I think the church needs to step up too. And one, be afraid to be unafraid to have those conversations with friends that are doing that. And to help them and offer them uh, to get uh, really to re relieve the excuses they're making, because almost every single time they're going to point to finances. Right. It just makes sense financially. But then, why does it make sense to get married? You know, it's, so if we're really serious about following Jesus, and we're actually going to pick up our cross and follow Christ, and it's talking to the men here, especially the men that are claiming to be following Jesus, we're actually going to be godly men. Uh, it's not about how much we flex. It's about how much we also treat our sisters in Christ. So before that person you're living with in a cohabitation relationship is your girlfriend or your fiance, they're first your sister in Christ. So how are you leading as a man in that example, claim to be a Christian, of modeling this for them as the norm? And then when your own kids, I guess you're going to be fine with that. If you're raising your kids in a Christian home, when they, what are you going to say? You know, when they make that decision, if you as a believer, you, as a redeemed believer in Jesus Christ, are saying, God, no thanks. I don't want you when it comes to this. I want what I want. I think there's more to be gained by disobeying you than there is to be gained by obeying you. That lie goes back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, I just think we have to say, I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure that we're living a holy life, and not out of legalism, but out of, out of gratitude to God and believing in his design, and also out of love and respect and care for your girlfriend or fiance. That I'm not going to be someone who uses them for the benefits of marriage while not giving them the covenant and the commitment of marriage. Those two things have to go together in God's in God's kingdom.
Yeah, guys, again, the name of the book is Pure. It'll be in the show notes so you guys can go and check that out. But before I let you go, I do want to kind of get into some other things. And we talked about this a little bit off air, but just the overall idea of a man-friendly church. So I've spent a lot of time talking about this, thinking about this, you know, telling other people about it because the, the modern church loves to lament the fact that men don't show up that, you know, women show up without their husbands and, you know, the kids are there, but the dads don't volunteer and all these different things. And, but gosh, we did that, you know, that once a year men's chili cook off. And I thought that that would be good enough. And I keep talking to people and I'm trying to spread the message of is it's not about men's programming. It's about making your church man friendly. It's about making the, the music, you know, uh, appealing to the man, possibly saying, you know, where you put it in a key that they can actually sing, talking about Jesus, not just as the Lamb of God, but also the Lion of Judah, understanding that there are two parts to his personality, but he is wholly both of those things. And also appealing to the righteousness and justice, which are typically things that would appeal to a masculine heart and spirit, as opposed to the feminine heart and spirit. And also when you see a very, very man-friendly church, Dean, one of the things that you don't see is you don't see just a bunch of oppressed women, right? That are walking around with bonnets on, right? You know, that, like, it's not one of those situations. The kids aren't walking around terrified of their overzealous totalitarian father, you know, raining down judgment on them and, you know, taking scripture out of context in order to do so. You see the right ordering of things. You see godly men that are catechizing their children, that are leading their wives, and it is a healthy, godly situation. But most churches are not focused on that. They're focused on getting as many people into the door as possible, make sure that they're giving so that they continue continue to keep the lights on and potentially launch another campus. So talk to me a little bit about man-friendly churches. What have you thought about that? What have you even done at your own church to ensure that that's something that's a reality? Yeah, I think it starts in the pulpit. You know, we need a pastor that goes up there and actually does real talk, you know, just kind of spares the bull crap. And you know, a man might get mad at you for a second because you called him out, you know, you're not directly calling out, but they feel called out because something mm-hmm. you talked about, but they're going to respect that down the road. And, and sometimes it takes a dude talking to a dude, right, to actually get through to a guy. I know I'm like that. I need a guy to get in my face sometimes. And I'm not going to yell and scream at you, but I'm going to speak straight. I'm going to speak direct. I'm not going to sugarcoat things. I'm not going to paint God as a magic fairy in the sky, you know. So, uh, but I do think it's important also for men that we realize that our affections, that's actually a good word, are supposed to grow. Uh, you know, are supposed to grow for God. I don't think that comes from a key change or a, you know a nice little poem. I think that comes from more of the scriptures. And the more we know who God is, the more we're going to grow in our love for God. Right? We love because He first loved us. So I think we just got to point men over and over again to the good news of the gospel. And when it comes to the church, actually have them in mind. When I write a sermon, I'm usually thinking about men who were there that mm-hmm. day. And, and so, and then I also want our lyrics to be about Christ. Like to actually lift up the name of Jesus, about who he is, about what he's done, and to sing songs that actually grow our affections for Jesus, not because he got presented as our boyfriend, but because he got presented as our Messiah, right? As, as the crucified king who's risen and is coming again. You know, I, I can't think of anything more exciting than that. <laughs> yeah, so so let, let's let the gospel drive that, and let's not take our cue from Christian radio. Because Christian radio, you know who Christian radio is marketed to? You're basic, like, kind of middle-aged mom. Right. And praise God for middle-aged moms, right? I want to be a church for them, too. But they're coming anyways. Right? Women are going to church anyways. So I don't want to take my cues from, like, top 40 poppy Christian radio on, on what we should do in our worship services. Instead, I'd rather sing to the Bible. I'd rather sing great truths to the scriptures than just some kind of poppy, jazzy, you know, Jesus is my buddy, you know, kind of song that makes the guy go, oh, my gosh, what are we singing right now? That's basically Christian radio right now, Right. 
So, but I, I do think it primarily comes from the pulpit. Real talk, straight talk, talking to dudes, thinking about guys. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a football coach. I mean, I mean, I'm this guy. Like, I, I don't, I don't identify with all the kind of feminine ideas of Christianity and God. I, I just can't really relate to those kind of things. Uh, I, I can relate though to the the one who died for my sins and rose again. So let's make him the deal and, and, and point men and confront them with the reality of who Jesus is and what that means for all of our lives. So that's kind of how I think about men in church. Well, Dean, one thing that I see, and you talked about kind of the Ted talky church and the, you know, the, the life skills church and all that, the seeker sensitive model is it seems like people are, these churches are setting the bar so incredibly low, right? So, you know, we're going to sing four songs, but one of them is going to be a secular song that we're going to sing from this Christian stage because we want you to feel comfortable. We're not really going to challenge you in the sermon. Right. We're not really going to push back on your own personal decisions because we want to make sure that you come back. Like we want to make sure that you bring other friends that are just like you. And then if you even if you were to get saved in a church like that, which is somewhat dubious, depending on the church. But even if you you get saved in a situation like that, you're going to spend so much time just every week coming back to get your fix because it's spiritual skittles. Right. You're not getting any meat. You're not getting any of that sustenance that you need. I guess the question I would have is. Why do you see so many churches setting the bar so low? Because they, they bought into this idea that if we make the barrier to entry so low, a ton of people will come in. They're right in that a ton of people will come through the door of your facility, but they're wrong in terms of, you know, people coming through the door and being one with Christ, like, like kind of being saved by the blood of Christ rather is a, is a better way of saying it. And so like, if you're, if you're actually teaching and preaching the gospel, you're demanding that people change everything and irrevocably change their entire lives. But talk to me a little bit about, about that low bar approach. Yeah, well, here's what I've seen in the whole seeker-sensitive idea. There, there's a dirty little secret here, and this might sound a little harsh or controversial, but I really believe this. And that is that that they bill it as all these unbelievers are coming because of X, because we're doing this, when really it's mostly just de-church people okay. who, didn't right. like, who didn't like church before, and now they're older, and they want church to feel cool, to feel lighter, to feel more casual. Uh, so they're really drawing in people that just want an easier church experience for themselves. They can hear their TED Talk, have their coffee. And we serve coffee. I'm not anti-coffee. But I'm talking about the experience. Hear their TED Talk, listen to a couple songs. Notice I didn't say sing. Listen to a couple songs. Mm -hmm. Take their coffee and go home. So what I've noticed with unbelievers, though, they think all the things that the seeker-sensitive churches try to do, they actually think it's cheesy. Like they think it's weird. We've made mistakes before trying in our early days of the church, just trying to be all that and trying to do too much. Things we just said, that's almost like kind of repented of, honestly, as we grew up and matured, was we would think, oh, if we do this, then the unbelievers that came is going to think it's great. When we realized the unbeliever thinks it's weird and didn't expect to come in and sing a secular song at a church service. Right. Now, the deep church person's like, oh, our church is so cool. We sing this and we do that. The unbeliever doesn't care about that kind of stuff. I've never been an unbeliever in my life who's like, man, I heard they have a great band. Let's go to church tomorrow. They're lost. They don't care about that. <laughs> they don't care. Well, they can go see a great band yeah. at any concert hall. Yeah. Yeah. And these are professional musicians, you know what I mean? Or better, yeah. So, yeah. So, so I just think it's kind of an urban legend that these things work to attract unbelievers. When I don't know an unbeliever who would go to church for any reason outside of being invited by a friend. Invited by a trusted friend. So I think that we need to just kind of reevaluate. And when they come, they actually expect, when I go to a taco restaurant, I expect to eat tacos. Right. You know, so when you, so even an unbeliever, I know very much about church. Uh, they may never even been before. Maybe when they're a little kid, they went and got their Catholic christening or something like that. But they actually expect to hear about God and to have an actual 
what they thought church was like. So let's actually give that to them. Well, and it's like, Dean, it's like they're trying so hard to be just like the culture that hates and rejects them. Right. It's because they've kind of placed themselves downstream of the culture. So that's why they dress like the culture. They talk like the culture. They play like the culture. They preach like the culture. They do all those different things. But then they've forgotten the entire point, which is that they are supposed to be the salt. Right. And and if salt loses its saltiness, then it then it's not a preservative anymore. So right. It, it, yeah, it's supposed to be different. Now, Dean, we, we've talked about a lot of things in this conversation. We'll make this the last question of the day because I'm going to go back to something that you said in terms of your sermon content. You said that you have your men in mind, the men of your congregation in mind when you're preparing your sermon. Now, we're going to leave the TED Talk churches aside because what they do is they decide which life skill they want to focus on that month. They build out a four-part series and then they sprinkle Bible verses over the top of it so that they can still get the taxes That's and all, status. That's all it is. Right, right. And so... Um, which I, you know, I'm okay with life lessons, but we should be, we should be dealing with the scripture. That's what your flock needs. But most preachers and teachers seemingly are just like, okay, we're going to go through this book of the Bible and then I'm just going to walk right through it. And I'm just going to do a sermon that I think is good. And we'll just kind of go with it, but they're not necessarily thinking about the men inside the congregation. And some of the best men that I know of that do preach from the pulpit, they are constantly thinking about the men as they're kind of deciding what the the future or uh, the direction that they're going to be blazing as a church, as they, as they go to, to God through prayer for supplication and direction and all those different things. They're thinking about the men in their church that are going to be the ones that are digging the trenches for battle or the ones storming the gates of hell. Like those are the types of men and the pastors that I can really, really get behind. So for you specifically, why do you focus so much on the men? And then what would be your message to other pastors listening to this to encourage them to do the same? Yeah, I'm trying to reach my friends. So I'm thinking about not just men, but these specific guys, you know, that that are finally coming to church. So I'm going to invite. I, I, it just bothers me how many women I see who are married show up without their husbands. And I praise God they're coming. I think it actually takes some courage to walk in church by yourself when everyone knows you're married. You know, you're there by yourself. I don't mean one week because somebody's out of town, but like a consistent every single week. So what I've learned is that oftentimes the women want you to speak to the men because they want their husbands to lead. They want their husbands to be godly. Right, they want their husbands to model Christ in the home. So they're going, yes, please, like talk about these things. So I'm also talking to myself too, because I'm a guy, right? Obviously, uh, but but also I understand that I'm prone to certain things as a guy, and I have certain temptations, and I you know believe lies in my head about what it means to be a man and not be a man. I let I let the world influence me. So I'm speaking to myself too. So I'm thinking, okay, what I'm what is my what do I need to hear as well as my friends? And I think part of the pastors out there. I think being a part of the regular rhythms and life of your city, being rooted in your town, where you actually have friends that you, if you're, if you're a sports guy, go watch football with and go to games with, or, or have guys that you go, you know, do your CrossFit with, whatever it could be, that you're actually connected to men so you know what's going on in the lives of men. You, so it's hard to, to preach to a target audience. And by audience, I don't mean that we, as consumers, I mean like just the hearers. You know, it's hard, it's hard to speak to that if you don't know them. If you don't know what's going on in the life of men. So I would say try to find ways to immerse yourself in what's going on with other men in your community. That's coaching Little League Baseball, you know, but whatever it could be, like just be engaged and see what's going on. And that will allow you to think about this. So when I sit down and write a sermon, I'm actually thinking about them, my friends, in my mind as I'm mm-hmm. writing my sermon. And I'd encourage anyone to do that. 
Well, I certainly appreciate that, Dean. You've allowed us to go into a lot of different areas. You even you know, took my pushback on the book well. I really appreciate you elucidating your point of view a little bit further. But that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? Man, I love what you're doing. I love this podcast. Thanks for having me as a guest. And guys that are listening, I know it's not exclusively men, but men out there like following Jesus is worth it. It is worth it. So let's go all in together. That's a great place to leave it. Dean and Sarah, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. There you go, guys. Hope you enjoyed my time with Dean and Sarah. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So here are the links I've got for you today. I've got a link to City Church's website, and then I've got a link to three of his books. So Pure, the one that we talked about today, but also books called The Unsaved Christian and Getting Over Yourself. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album leveler the links are in the description i'm your host kyle thompson remember keep pushing back darkness keep forging spiritual mental and physical resilience keep seeking the lion of judah